0: So, uh, yeah, I want to say thank you to uh, Mandy and QUT colleagues for giving me the opportunity to come and speak to you today. It's a real pleasure to be here. I was last at QT five years ago. Welcome um, to the IV And so it's uh, in the meantime, it's uh, lots, change the well, America, lots of changed at Nesta. Well, a lot's changed at the Hassan UK. Barchi. And of course, the backdrop a against QT which I'm presenting this Barchi. is uh, Brisbane, with Brexit. Friday, uh, the UK is thinking Denmark, very hard about what its future sources of international Hassan competitive Barchi advantage will be. And unsurprisingly, uh, there's a lot of interest in, in the skills base the, the, the talent pool in the UK and whether we can rise up to some of the challenges. In this lecture... I want to argue that the public debate around automation and the future of employment is is both dangerous and misleading. It is dangerous because popular narratives matter for economic outcomes and a narrative of relentless technological displacement of labour markets, risks chilling innovation and growth. A backlash against technology would be particularly dangerous at a time when boldness to embrace risk and venture into the unknown is needed more than ever to improve flagging productivity growth in advanced, developed countries. It is misleading because there are opportunities for boosting growth, though with an important caveat that our education and training systems are agile enough to respond appropriately. History tells us that investments in skills must be at the center of any long-term strategy for adjusting to structural change. And while there is no shortage of research assessing the impact of future automation, on individual occupations, there is far less that focuses on the outlook for skills, and even less that provides guidance for employers and job holders on areas like job redesign and learning priorities, and that generates actionable insights for policymakers. If you look at this uh, slide here, the headline in pink is from The Guardian What jobs will still be around in 20 years? Read this to prepare for your future. The strapline acknowledges that jobs won't entirely disappear. Many will simply be redefined. However, it then adds that people will likely lack new skill sets required for new roles and be out of work anyway. Of course, technological anxiety is not a new phenomenon. Fears about the job destruction effects of new technologies have been expressed before, during the Industrial Revolution, and at key points throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. This headline here is from the New York Times and it appeared in February 1928. Each time adjustment was disruptive for some workers and industries, but in the long run, such fears were not realized. The employment to population ratio grew during most of the 19th and 20th centuries in the UK and US, even as these economies experienced the effects of mechanization, the taming of electricity, the invention of the automobile and the spread of mass communication. Now, by definition, history cannot settle whether this time is different, but what is striking about the perspectives of earlier observers is how narrowly they defined the scope of what technology could accomplish. Earlier generations of machines were limited to manual and cognitive routine activities based on well-defined repetitive procedures. The new, te- the new technologies, by contrast, are mimicking, mimicking the human body and mind in increasingly subtle ways, encroaching on many non-routine activities from legal writing and truck driving to medical diagnoses and security guarding. The case of driverless cars illustrates the slippery and shifting definitional boundary around what it means for work to be routine. In their seminal 2004 book, The New Division of Labor, How Computers Are Creating the Next Job Market, Frank Levy and Richard Murnane argued that driving in traffic, insofar as it is reliant on human perception, fundamentally resisted automation. I quote, executing a left turn against oncoming traffic involves so many factors that it is hard to imagine discovering the set of rules that can replicate the driver's behavior. Formidable challenges lie ahead. The prospects of fleets of cars that can roam across cities or countries in all conditions without human input remains remote. Nonetheless, elements of this problem are now satisfactorily understood, but they can be specified in computer code and automated. For example, Google's driverless cars have driven over 2 million miles in the past six years and have been involved in 16 minor accidents, none of which caused injury or was the vehicle's fault. Now, a more forward-looking approach can help guard against these pitfalls. This is exemplified by Carl Frey and Michael Osborne's widely cited study, which assesses the feasibility of automating existing jobs, assuming that new technologies are implemented across industries on a much larger scale. In that study, a sample of occupations is hand labeled by Oxford University AI researchers as either strictly automatable or not. They then make use of standardized measures of nine skills and abilities features of an occupation from the US Department of Labor's ONET database that measure three bottlenecks to automation perception and manipulation, creative intelligence, and social intelligence. And they do this to develop a machine learning classifier to generate a probability of automation for all jobs. They now famously estimate that over the next two decades, 47% of US workers are at high risk of automation and 33% are at low risk, with 19% in between. Now this finding has not gone unchallenged. It has been argued that a handful of variables cannot possibly capture the diverse economic impacts of technological change on skills, especially across the wide range of occupations that we see in the labour market. In a study for the OECD, Melanie Arndt and colleagues at Z.E.W. Mannheim observed that within an occupation, many workers specialize in tasks that cannot be automated. Using the automation probabilities from the Frey and Osborne study and drawing on survey data of task structures for individuals across more than 20 OECD countries, they argue that once variation is taken into account, variation in tasks is taken into account, a much smaller percentage of jobs, 9%, are at risk of being completely displaced. these are estimates for the US. In another study published earlier this year, McKinsey Global Institute disaggregates occupations into 2,000 constituent activities, rating each against 18 human human capabilities and the extent to which they can be substituted by machines. It estimates that 49% of work activities globally have the potential to be automated, though very few occupations, less than 5%, are candidates for full automation. Now, while these studies confirm the importance of considering automatability at the task level, this approach does have its own challenges. In principle, there is nothing in an occupation-based approach that prevents analysts from considering its constituent tasks when evaluating the occupation's potential for automation. There are also drawbacks with a strictly bottom-up approach in the context of anticipating occupational and skills demand. In isolation, one might reasonably infer that similar tasks, take selling, have similar levels of demand. But as part of an occupation, they also belong to different industries with different growth trajectories and require different knowledge connected to the product or to the buyers of the product. Consider, for example, an an insurance sales agent versus a solar equipment sales representative. By emphasising discrete tasks, there is a risk of losing important coordinating information which gives occupations their coherence, the fabric which distinguishes the whole from the parts. Practically, unbundling occupations may be difficult without diluting quality. MIT economist David Autor counters the simple view, popular in some parts of the automation debate, that jobs can be redefined as machines perform routine tasks and workers perform the rest. And I quote here again at length. Because I think it's quite a nice example. Consider the commonplace frustration of calling a software firm for technical support, only to discover that the support technician knows nothing more than what is on his or her computer screen. That is, the technician is a mouthpiece, not a problem solver. This example captures one feasible division of labor, machines performing routine technical tasks, such as looking up known issues in a support database, and workers performing the manual task of making polite conversation while reading aloud from a script. But this is not generally a productive form of work organization because it fails to harness the complementarities between technical and interpersonal skills. A limitation of the automation studies is that they typically only estimate which occupations are potentially automatable, not how many will actually be automated. Yet the journey from technical feasibility to full adoption can take decades, involving many steps and missteps. Just as significantly, they do not assess the potential for job creation in tasks and occupations complemented by automation, or the adjustments that are triggered in other parts of the economy through relative wage changes and other market forces. The effect of fleshing out these dynamics is to substantially muddy and possibly reverse more pessimistic conclusions. Terry Gregory and co-authors develop a task-based framework estimating that automation boosted net labor demand across Europe by up to 11.6 million jobs over the the period 1990 to 2010. They identify a number of channels that potentially compensate for the job-destroying effects of automation, including first, that it may lead to lower unit labor costs, and therefore prices, which stimulates higher demand for products. And second, that surplus income from innovation can be converted into additional spending, so generating demand for extra jobs in more automation-resistant sectors. However, a number of strong assumptions are necessary for this result, notably that additional additional firm profits are spent locally in Europe when in fact they can accrue to non-European shareholders. Relaxing this assumption results in significantly lower estimates, although they are still positive. This finding has particular relevance to debates about who owns the capital and the case for spreading ownership of robot capital through profit-sharing programmes and employee stock ownership plans. Darren Arsimoglu and Pasquale Restrepo explore the impact of the increase in industrial robot usage between 1990 and 2007 on local labour markets in the US. They find that each additional robot reduces employment by about seven workers with limited evidence of offsetting employment gains in other industries. This finding is important. It's robust to a range of different specifications, tests, and controls, such as demographic and industry characteristics, the share of routine jobs, and import competition from China. Importantly, excluding the automobile industry, the heaviest user of robots does not change the results. Now, while Asimuglu and Mistrepe's work is an important step forward in our understanding of the dynamics of the dynamic employment effects of automation, it is far from the final word. In the main, it does not address the global effects of automation, which are important um, given rich rich patterns of trade, migration, and specialisation across local markets. Also, with the robot revolution still in its infancy, short-term consequences may differ from the long-term once relative prices and investment have had time to fully adjust. Evidence of diminishing marginal returns to robot usage, documented by Gretz and Michaels, is consistent with this view. The need to recognize the interactions embedded in trends carries across into other spheres. Parallel to automation is a set of broader technological, demographic, economic, environmental, and geopolitical trends, which may have profound implications for labor markets, as well as raising more obvious challenges for policy in their own right. In some cases, the trends are reinforcing one another. In others, they are producing second order effects, which may be missed when viewed in isolation. Consider the implications of an ageing population, a topic of obvious interest in Australia too. Now, while much of the public debate on automation is focused on the potential for mass unemployment, it overlooks the fact that robots may be required to maintain economic growth in response to lower labour force participation. The risk, in other words, may not not be that there will be too few jobs, but that there will be too few people to fill them, bidding up wages in the process, which may explain why countries undergoing more rapid population ageing tend to adopt more robots. The The broader point is that the singular focus on the impacts of automation to the exclusion of other trends risks distorting our understanding of the different workforce challenges and opportunities that lie ahead and of how we should be responding to them. What do long run trends in advanced developed economies like population ageing, urbanization, climate change, and globalization mean for the future of work? Will the positive effects on employment of future technological progress in all its forms, automation, yes, but also biotechnology, the materials re- re- revolution, and the internet of things, offset the negative? What knowledge, skills, and attitudes will individuals need to do the jobs in the future economy? Where may the main skills gaps be? And what can educators and policymakers do? to anticipate these? These are the questions that Jonathan Downing, Michael Osborne, Philippe Schneider, and I have attempted to address in a new study for the US and UK economies that we'll be publishing at the end of the month. And I want to use the rest of the time I've got available to give you some of the results. Now, the research design starts from three key facts. First, that despite disruptive technological and industrial change, there is a high degree of persistence in the composition of the workforce, suggesting that looking back at the history of employment, is a good starting point for making predictions about the future. These figures are taken from a study by Michael Handel at Northeastern University for the OECD. The first two data columns confirm the well-known changes that that have been in the workforce composition of jobs in OECD countries in the half century since 1960. For example, the US workforce share of management occupations increasing from 9.6% in 1960 to 15.4% in 2009, and production jobs falling from 34.9% to 20.3%. While in Japan, the workforce share of managers increased to just just 2.7% from 2.1%, and production jobs decreased only slightly from 32.4% to 30.1%. What is less widely appreciated is that these changes have been very gradual, and therefore to some extent predictable, with a high degree of persistence in decadal changes. This no doubt reflects the fact that labour markets are social institutions and that there are high employment adjustment costs, even in the face of major changes, such as the arrival of new and disruptive technologies. So, for example, some analysts draw parallels between the labour market consequences of information technologies today and earlier examples of technology innovations. They point to the case of electrification, where labour productivity in the US accelerated around 1915 then slowed down in the mid-20s before experiencing a second boom in the 1930s, a pattern which some argue is being experienced with IT today. Another example is the behaviour of the labour mar- force participation rate, which also displays a high degree of persistent, persistence. This chart is taken from a paper by Alan Kruger at Princeton University. It shows that the US participation rate, the total labour force divided by the total working age population, has evolved differently across different demographic groups. For example, the marked decline in the overall participation rate since 2007 masks a long-term secular decline in the participation rate of men aged 25 years and over. Kruger shows that the US labor force participation rate for prime-age men, those aged 25 to 54, is now one of the lowest in the OECD, in fact, second only to Italy, and its fall has been driven by health-related reasons. The second key fact that motivates our our new study is that the US and UK economies are experiencing multiple breaks in long-run trends that theory suggests will have major consequences for employment. The implication is that notwithstanding the value of learning from the past, naive extrapolation will paint an incomplete and potentially biased picture of future prospects. So for example, this chart shows why there are major concerns that the rapid rise of global trade has now run its course reflecting factors such as levelling off, of offshoring and a stronger domestic production base in emerging economies. This so-called peak globalization thesis would suggest that the impact of global trade on labor markets in the future may be very different to what we've become used to in the past. There's also evidence of marked differences in the consumption and savings behavior across generations. The millennials, the cohort born in the two decades of 2000, make up one fifth of the UK population and will emerge over the coming decades as the main source of spending as they inherit the assets of their parents. The millennials are the first group to come of age after the internet, social media, and mobile became widespread. They have more information and choice than previous generations, but have heightened expectations of immediacy, participation, and transparency that is driving innovation in many industries. This chart from the Resolution Foundation shows that millennials in the UK are postponing major life decisions, such as owning their own homes, having children and are spending more time when young on travel, exercise, eating and cultural experiences. All of which have important implications for the labour market in the sectors in question. At the same time, as I noted earlier, population ageing is reducing labour force growth, in some cases turning it negative, one of Robert Gordon's headwinds for economic growth. But there are reasons for thinking that future trends may be even more concerning than one might have thought even just a few years ago. Kruger's chart shows that the US labor force participa- participation rate for women, which had seen a trend increase throughout the post-war period, in fact peaked prior to the global recession. Increasing depra- de- dependency ratios mean that the proportion of the population entering productive years is falling, reducing saving and therefore investment. Some have suggested that the macroeconomic consequences of population ageing could be very serious indeed. McKinsey suggests that GDP growth could fall by 40% globally and by 10% in countries like the UK over the next 50 years, even assuming labour productivity grows at its historical rate. Another likely structural change with important labour market implications for sectors like say, financial services relates to uncertainty. And while uncertainty is, of course, an endemic feature of economies... The evidence suggests that along important dimensions, present uncertainty levels are unusually high. Indices of geopolitical uncertainty, such as this one I put up here, produced by Dario Caldara and Matteo Iarquiviello at the Federal Reserve Board, based on references to uncertainty-related words in the printed press, persist at much higher levels after they spiked on 9-11. And consistent with this, indicators of policy uncertainty, understood as relating to the institutional structures that enable authorities to act credibly and consistently have also seen step increases. Nick Bloom's work at Stanford suggests that migration-related fears in particular spill over into policy uncertainty, and that these fears have trended up strongly since 2005. In the UK, measures of migration fear today stand twice as high as they were in the late 1990s. Recall this was a period that coincided with the Kosovo War and refugee crisis, as well as Tony Blair's promise of tougher immigration controls. The third key factor motivating our study is that occupations are complex. They deploy a complicated mix of knowledge, skills, and abilities, and are performed using a variety of activities and tasks, meaning that the models we use to generate quantitative labor market predictions must be sophisticated. To take an example, I mentioned Frey and Osborne's automation study earlier. That shows that the estimated probability of future automation of an occupation, shown here on these charts on the x-axis, is highly non-linear in the importance of a particular skill or ability to that occupation. So each dot, and I'll mention this because there's some charts later which uh, will help to explain how these work, but each dot here is uh, an occupation in the US workforce. And on the x-axis, you've got the probability of future computerization, future automation of this occupation as judged by their analysis. And on the y-axis for these different nine uh, uh, bottlenecks that they, they, you know, features of jobs that they look at, uh, each occupation is scored according to ONET. Uh, on, how, uh, on its level of a particular skill, uh, a skill or knowledge feature that's needed for a particular job. So to give an example, let's take fine arts here. So fine arts here, these all, there are however many seven, 800 occupations in their study They didn't include uh, certain uh, occupations in their study for, for lack of data. But this is the vast majority of the U.S. workforce. Each dot is an occupation. And what it shows is that the relationship between the probability of automation or probability of future computerization of an occupation is non-linearly related to how uh, important uh, uh, the level of fine arts knowledge that's required uh, to do that particular job. And you see this non-linearity here with other features as well. A further complexity about jobs is that advanced economies vary considerably, both in the structure of their labor markets and in their labor market responses to structural change. We know, for example, that the prevalence of high-performance work practices like collaboration, mentoring and job rotation, crucial for determining whether technology complements or replaces labour, varies very considerably across countries. What's more, this does not simply reflect cross-country differences in workforce occupation composition. Melanie Arntz's paper for ZEW Mannheim that I mentioned earlier suggests that the task compositions of the same occupations can vary considerably across OECD countries. This may help to explain why the much-discussed phenomenon of employment polarization as a result of successive waves of automation is much less apparent in some countries than it is in the US, and to a lesser extent, the UK. Now, these three key facts, that there's a high degree of persistence in labor markets, that there have been structural breaks in key long-run trends, and the fact that occupations are complex are the backdrop to our study and are what underpins our research design which is that we combine historical trend analysis, expert human foresight, and non-linear machine learning algorithms to generate predictions about the future of skills. In the first stage of the study, we review and synthesize in the form of a trends deck what the academic and grey literature says about long-run trends impacting on the labor market. In the second stage, we invite experts in different domains to foresight workshops to to debate the implications of structural breaks in these long-run trends for future employment. During these workshops, we ask experts to label a set of 30 occupations, picked sequentially by an active learning algorithm, according to whether they expect them to rise or fall in demand by 2030, alongside how certain or uncertain they are in making these judgments. In the third stage of the analysis, we use these expert assigned labels to train a machine learning classifier of whether an occupation will become more or less important in the future workforce. That is, we generate directional predictions exploiting a rich data set of the importance of 120 skills, abilities, and knowledge features of different occupations drawn from ONET. So these are the nine I gave earlier from the Freyne Osborne study. We we use a a much sort of larger data set of 120 skills, abilities, and knowledge features. Now, the model tells us which feature combinations are most associated with occupations predicted to grow, but also, importantly, which human capital investments are most potent in boosting further the demand prospects of an occupation, given given its existing mix of skills, abilities, and knowledge features. This chart here plots US employment, according to the study, by different occupation groups, according to the likelihood of them experiencing future growth in the workforce, as predicted by our model. For this chart, we use a secondary aggregation of the major groups, as specified by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The area under the curve here uh, is the 135 million people so employed in the US economy. there are a couple of exceptions in terms of military occupations, I think, are excluded from this database because ONA doesn't measure the skills uh, and knowledge features of that, uh, that occupation group. So, the area under the curve is 135 million individuals. And this shows, according to these uh, major groups from manage- management business and financial occupations down to transportation material moving occupations, it basically shows where the mass of that uh, employment in those occupations lies according to its probability of, uh, of higher demand. If you uh, look at management, business, and financial occupations, the majority of these occupations are uh, in jobs which, according to the model, according to the analysis, have a probability of higher than 0.5, of seeing, experiencing high demand. But a significant minority uh, have, uh, of, of occupations in that group have a probability of high demand according to the model, model of less than uh, 0.5. Uh, this is high demand. We're met in this particular set of results, these are... We're measuring this by the, the, the relative importance of the occupation in the economy, so it's expressed as a percentage of the workforce as a whole, although we look at absolute, absolute predictions as well, predictions in absolute employment as well, the difference being what, people's view, what the model says is the outlook for whole economy employment growth. Uh, if you look at an occupation such as transportation, material moving occupations, according to the analysis, the vast majority, uh, almost all uh, of the people employed in, in, in jobs in this occupational group, are expected to see, uh, uh, you know, have a probability of less than 0.5, and more likely than not to see a decrease in workforce share. And then you've got these uh, interesting examples like sales and related occupations, computer engineering science occupations, which sort of straddle, straddle both. And some of the more interesting results is when you start getting below, be, below these aggregates, because the model works at the four-digit standard occupation classification level. So these are, this is a synthetic chart based on aggregating occupations to try and make it a bit easier to interpret. But um, an immediate finding here, and if you compare with the earlier, I won't put the chart up again, but the, bimo- you know, the bimodal chart apart from the Frey Osborne study, an immediate finding is the striking contrast with that U-shaped automation distribution in Frey and Osborne. Recall their result that almost half of the US workforce are in jobs with a high likelihood of future automation, and around one third are in jobs with, such, uh, with a low such likelihood. Remember, this is the binary finding that suggests that essentially half of the US workforce are in jobs, which is essentially are screwed, and a third of the workforce are in jobs, which have sort of are, are going to have rosy prospects. In contrast, in our results, the majority of the workforce is in fact in occupations with highly uncertain future prospects. This is the mass around the 0.5 area here, around the middle of the distribution. In fact, only one-fifth of occupations, according to this, these results, are very likely to decline, and one-tenth are in occupations That are very likely to grow, assuming the same 0.7 and 0.3 thresholds that Frey and Osborne used. That our predictions are more uncertain is a direct result of the distinctions in our methodology from previous work. Firstly, the expert labels we gather in our foresight exercises are explicitly closed on uncertainty, whereas Frey and Osborne assume that participants are certain about their labels. This humility is partially motivated by the difficulty of the task that we assign to our experts, balancing all the macro trends that might influence the future of work. Our allowance for our experts' self-assessed degrees of confidence also recognises that many of the macro trends act at cross-purposes, leading to uncertainty about which will dominate in the case of any one occupation. Secondly, the uncertainty of our predictions reflects the use of the richest set of 120 features in the ONET data against the nine used in Frey and Osborne. Intuitively, this more detailed characterization of occupations renders them less similar to one another, and hence limits the confidence of our model in predicting for one occupation based on what has been labelled for another. Uncertainty is an important dimension of our findings and one of the key themes of my lecture, because it suggests that the future of most occupations is far from inevitable, raising the prospect that individuals in different occupations may improve their labour market chances if they can invest in the right skills. So this table lists only the minor occupation groups about which our model is most optimistic. And it's ranked here according to the percentage of people employed in these groups who are in individual occupations with a probability of experiencing future growth of at least 0.7. So for example, if you look at this minor occupation group in the US classification, preschool, primary, secondary, and special education school teachers, there are around 4 million people employed in that occupation group. According to the model, 97.8% of those people are in jobs, which according to the model, we'll see a probability of demand of higher than 0.7. Again, this is just, it's a bit of an arbitrary threshold, but it's the one that's been used in this, in the, in the automation literature. Uh, all, all, of the, all of the people employed in, the, in, in jobs in that group, because there are many four digit occupational jobs, uh, occupational codes underlying this minor level, but all of the people employed in those occupations are in, according to the model, have probability of seeing higher demand uh, in 2030, bigger than 0.5. So what can we take from this table? Obviously a lot of numbers. We can observe that education and personal care occupations feature prominently in the rankings. However, health care occupations are lower than expected by trends such as ageing. We might speculate that the latter reflects uncertainty over the trajectory of US health care policy and spending in it spending. And this is certainly a topic that was discussed in the workshops, the foresight workshops the experts were grappling with. Construction trade work as a large employer also emerges as having rosy prospects. This finding is supported by a number of trends, including urbanisation, ageing and globalisation, uh, and so forth. It suggests that construction may be an important source of medium-skilled US jobs in the future. Remember, these aren't all the. this isn't an exhausting list of minor occupations. There are 90-odd all in the US. So these are just the, the ones, according to analysis, that are the rosiest prospects. We also see that cultural occupations like librarians, curators, and archivists, entertainers and performers, sports and related workers, and media and communication workers these are the language of the US classification, uh, occupational classification, classification, are also predicted to see a growth in demand. And that demand prospects, and this is important, can vary considerably for occupations which are otherwise very similar. For example, according to the model, Business operations specialists, which typically need information management expertise, are set to grow as a share of the US workforce, while it turns out neighboring minor, minor occupation groups in the SOC, in the standard occupation classification, such as financial specialists, are predicted to see a fall. And when we look at the detailed occupation level, we see that the results for business operations specialists, this rosy picture, are driven by management analysts, training and development specialists, labor relations specialists, logist, log- logisticians, and meeting, convention, and event planners in particular, Occupations which will conceivably benefit from the reorganization of work in the workplace. Another niche expected to grow in the work face, workforce share, working growth force share, uh, is other sales and related workers, and within, within that, in particular, sales engineers and real estate agents, notwithstanding the predicted decline in general sales occupations that we'll see shortly. And in fact, this table here. This table here lists the minor occupation groups for which the model is most pessimistic, so to the other end. Ranked here, in this particular table, for each group, it calculates, according to the model, what percentage of the workforce, of, what, what percentage of people employed in that occupational group are in individual jobs, which according to the model, have a probability of less than 0.3 of seeing uh, a rise in demand. So, uh, woodworkers here, a quarter of a million or so that are employed in the US workforce, are all in jobs which, according to the model, have very bleak prospects of seeing uh, increase in future demand. What do these results show us? They support the importance of future routine biased technological change. Noticeably, they, ant- they anticipate the impact of automation encroaching on more cognitively advanced and complex occupations, such as the example of financial specialists I mentioned earlier. The predicted fall in retail sales workers and entertainment inter- attendants which between them account for a very large volume of employment in the US, is consistent with an expansion in digitally provided goods and services. The transportation occupations represented may reflect a belief that driverless cars will disrupt the future workforce. The rise of the sharing economy might reasonably be expected to lead to an increased demand for installation and repair jobs, especially in areas like transport, as cars and other assets are used more intensively, but this hypothesis is not supported by these results. here's a chart showing which 10 of the 120 skills, abilities and knowledge features in our data set are most associated with US occupations predicted to grow based on simple linear correlations. It includes a mix of non-cognitive social skills like social perceptiveness, instructing and coordination – this is the language of ONET – as well as cognitive skills like originality, fluency of ideas and active learning. This mix of of social skills and cognitive skills, as you all know, is sometimes broadly described in the literature as 21st century skills. So again, as in the Frey and Osborne, sort of non-linear charts I put up earlier, each dot here is uh, an occupation at four-digit level in the US workforce, and on the x-axis, paralleling the Frey and Osborne charts earlier, we've got the probability of higher demand as opposed to the probability of automation. And on the y-axis here, for these particular 10, top 10 sort of uh, features, which are correlated, we show the highest correlation with the probability of high demand. We have uh, a measure of how important that particular skill or knowledgeability feature is to that particular occupation. So we've got a correlation of 0.63 there for learning strategies. So the findings here are consistent with the literature on the rapidly growing importance of skill, social skills in the US workforce. David Deming at Harvard has shown that between 1980 and 2012, jobs with high social skill requirements grew by nearly to 10 percentage points as a share of the US labour force. In a nice study of Australian employment trends by CSIRO published last year, the researchers also use O*NET data, crosswalk to Australian occupations, to show that since 1991, occupations requiring people skills have grown much faster than other occupations. There are good reasons to think that these trends will continue, not only as organisations seek to reduce the costs of coordination, but also as they negotiate the cultural context in which globalisation and the spread of digital technology are taking place. The policy literature suggests that interventions targeted at different stages of the the life cycle have had some success in fostering social skills. The evidence base is most developed in the case of early years interventions. However, there is also evidence that work-based internships and apprenticeships can be beneficial reflecting the value of informal or tacit knowledge and the importance of bonds of attachment between a supervisor and an apprentice. The results also emphasize the importance of higher order cognitive skills, such as originality and fluency of ideas. Learning strategies and active learning, the ability of students to set goals, ask relevant questions, get feedback as they learn and apply that knowledge meaningfully in a variety of contexts also feature prominently. Progress towards developing skills such as these as a part of the formal education system has arguably been slower due to difficulties in understanding how they arise and develop over time and how they can be embedded embedded in the curriculum and formal assessments. Nonetheless, a number of initiatives have shown promise and are beginning to shape domestic and international policy dialogue. Strengthening the effective aspects of education and a lifelong learning habit, especially amongst boys and students from disadvantaged backgrounds who tend to have low levels of motivation, is a further area of interest for policymakers. The literature shows that teachers can play an important role, both in raising student expectations and in, reward, and in rewarding the process of learning. For instance, in giving students opportunities to share the results of their work with others or to explain why what they learned was a value to them. This point also illustrates a potentially important interplay between cognitive and social skills. Mark D'Inverno, professor of computing at Goldsmiths London and jazz quintet leader, describes the social process of giving and receiving feedback in order to validate, challenge and inspire as creative feedback, which underpins his entire educational philosophy of how schools, communities and universities should develop their learning environments. He gives the example of learning to play music. If you play a piece of music, you notes, then the only way you can know how it was heard and experienced by others is to get their feedback on your performance. This feedback will be absolutely critical if you want to understand how you can improve yourself as a performer. Of course, in any performance, sustained self-feedback, self-feedback is critical too, and musicians are skilled enough to give themselves this ongoing and continu- continuous feedback as they play. In addition to this, musicians have the option of recording performances and listening to them, to them later in order to provide an entirely new perspective. The distance created in time and space and moving from performer to listener provides new opportunities for fresh insights on how to improve one's own performance. Through an understanding of how we come across to others, we can often best advance the quality and precision of the feedback we give ourselves. More generally, the importance of higher order cognitive skills such as originality and the fluency of ideas, which ONET defines as the ability to come up with a number of ideas about a topic, combined with the prominence of features like communications and media, oral expression, and fine arts, even though they're outside the top 10, so it didn't make make the previous slide, points to the importance of creativity, a result which is particularly strong in the UK analysis, as I'll touch on briefly later. This echoes the finding from our 2015 study that creative occupations are far more likely to grow in the face of widespread future automation than other occupations. Rose Luckin at UCL stresses the importance of collaborative problem solving, which sits at the intersection of non-routine problem solving and social intelligence, or at its simplest level, solving problems together. She argues that non-routine problems that require a range of skills and abilities to come up with a solution that is new and unknown to the solver can improve attainment, as well as prepare children for future work, and that a system-wide shift in curriculum coverage, assessment, and teacher training is needed to prioritize collaborative problem solving. The OECD has acknowledged for some time that skills such as these are becoming more important and has been keen to ensure that evaluation metrics keep up with the reality. Later this year, it will be publishing at Nesta its first country PISA rankings for collaborative problem solving. While extending the PISA framework to collaborative problem solving helps legitimize its role in education systems, the extent to which it will be prioritized in national policies remains a far more open question, not least if the rankings do not correlate with measured attainment in a straightforward way. Many remain deeply sceptical about the educational value of concepts like collaborative problem solving, seeing them as a distraction from the traditional role of education in transmitting knowledge. At the opposite end of the spectrum, some educationalists seem to advocate that social discovery and problem solving can substitute altogether for acquiring knowledge. Both positions are inconsistent with our analysis. Looking at the results for all 120 of our features, in addition to knowledge features like psychology and sociology and anthropology that are related to social skills, English language, history, philosophy, and administration and management are all associated strongly with occupations predicted to see a rise in workforce share. The future workforce will have generic knowledge as well as skill requirements. In fact, we can use our model to make more subtle statements about the relative importance of knowledge, skills, and abilities as captured in ONET. It turns out that knowledge features like psychology and foreign languages are most valuable as complements, being important when other features take high values. We find a similar pattern for a large number of STEM-related features, such as science, technology design, and operations analysis. They are not equally useful for for all occupations, as would be required to be identified as important, using rankings based only on linear correlations, as, as I gave earlier. But they are of use for some specialized occupations over others that have high values for particular features. These charts here show which features are least associated with occupations predicted by the model to see growth. It shows that psychomotor and physical abilities are strongly associated with occupations with a falling workforce share. Interestingly, this includes abilities such as finger dexterity and manual dexterity, which Frey and Osborne had identified as key bottlenecks to automation. Trade and offshoring may offer a potential explanation why these skills might fall in demand in the US economy, and this is consistent with our workshop participants having considered a broad range of trends. The main feature that makes a job potentially offshoreable or vulnerable to import competition hinges less on a task's routineness or non-routineness than the cost advantages of producing overseas and the marginal importance of face-to-face interactions in the production process. Notice that the correlations for variables associated with a rising workforce share, the chart I showed you earlier, are in general stronger than those associate, associated with a falling occupation workforce share. This is perhaps not surprising. Other things being equal, so what I mean here is the correlations minus 0.5 is less than the 0.6, whatever it was, 0.63, that I showed you for the top ranking feature uh, on, the, on, the, on the plus side. This is perhaps not a surprising result. Other things being equal, an increase in the value of own it, any, any own it feature for an occupation makes it more skilled and might uh, broadly be expected to result in greater demand, even if there are other reasons why the occupation will experience a fall in demand. It's also a fortunate aspect of our findings because we want to inform skills policy, which is a natural focus on those skills most strongly linked to growing demand. As I've just alluded to, our modeling strategy allows us to identify complementary features at the occupational level, and this, I think, is probably the biggest research contribution we made in this analysis. That is, we call a particular feature A complementary with a feature B if increasing A increases demand for occupations with large values of B. This table shows, for illustrative, illustrative US sub major occupation groups, their top three features according to the ONET uh, data. So this takes different illustrative uh, uh, occupation groups, and then just according to ONET, these are the, uh, the top ranking features to car- which are important for that. Uh, for that job, uh, and then as well as the top three complementary features as suggested by our model. So just to give one example, production occupations. According to our model, they're predicted to see a fall in workforce share, it turns out, if you look at those earlier charts. The ONET data says that production and processing, near vision, and problem sensitivity are the three most important or emblematic features for this occupation group. Our model predicts that increasing customer and personal service, technology design, and installation in the presence of these features will have the greatest positive impact on future demand. In fact, looking across all occupation groups, it turns out that customer and personal service, science, and technology design, technology design is defined by ONET as generating or adapting equipment and technology to serve user needs, appear to be the ONET features most likely to appear as positive complementary variables, as when you look across occupations. Any reconfiguration of skills and knowledge requirements entails an evolution of the occupation. Or put differently, occupations may need to be redesigned in order to make effective use of skills and knowledge complements. Our findings could be a useful guide in this exercise, which is my response to the fatalistic guardian headline I showed at the outset of the presentation. It's also useful to think about new occupations which may emerge in the future in response to the drivers of labor market change we consider in our study. These occupations correspond to the model's model's high-demand locations in the feature space and are not associated with existing occupations. So the model allows us to identify a hypothetical occupation which is almost certain to experience an increase in workforce share. That is, it has a probability, according to the model, of seeing a rise in workforce share of near one and the combination of skills, abilities and knowledge features most associated with it. For the US, the model identifies four hypothetical occupations. This is one, two, three, four. These are four occupations, which would almost certainly experience a rise in demand. This table ranks the top five ONET features. Of course, we, for each of the occupations, we've got 120 of, the, uh, of these variables. But what I've put here, uh, just for illustration, is the top five uh, ONET features uh, in declining order of feature value for each hypothetical occupation. S incidentally denotes the, that the variable is an ONet net skill. A that it is an ability according to O-Net and K is what it defines as an ONet net knowledge feature. So for example, first occupation, which has these five features here. According to the model, this hypothetical occupation, an occupation which is, uh, touches great uh, uh, importance to customer and personal service, static strength, service orientation, biology and the arm, arm hand steadiness. According to the model, an occupation with those features is predicted to have almost certainly seen an increase in demand. Um, now, we can understand these are hypothetical occupations, quite tricky to get your head around them, by looking at existing occupations that are closest to them in declining order of proximity in feature space. And that's what this figure does here. Well, the, one point I wanted to say is that of the 20, so for four occupations here, we've just listed five that according to the, according to the, the, the model, are closest in feature space to these hypothetical occupations. So when I was looking at occupation earlier, occupation one, these are the five existing occupations that are closest to it. So if you look at these 20 occupations presented, turns out that 11 are independently characterized by the US Department of Labor as enjoying a bright outlook and and or are expected to benefit from the growth of the green economy. So these results provide another rejoinder to the view that jobs in the middle of the education and earnings distributions will necessarily disappear in the future, necessarily disappear in the future. Two of these four occupations can plausibly be viewed as middle skilled jobs. Our first type occupation here, the first hypothetical occupation, which has similarities to social work, is particularly interesting. On the one hand, it is a, it is a textbook example of a sector where the availability of low-skill employees. The budgetary squeeze of government programmes – Medicare and Medicaid uh, – account for roughly 70% of all long-term care dollars, and the legacy of the politics of race and gender have combined to create low-paid jobs with low status and precarious employment conditions. However, according to this model, it points to bright demand prospects for care work, which requires a mixture of tasks from across the skill spectrum, including formal knowledge and training, which in turn would support wage growth and job quality. It's interesting to note the results of this new occupations analysis in the case of the UK study. I haven't had a a chance to go through the UK results, but this is interesting, because here the model identifies two hypothetical occupations that will almost certainly experience future growth and demand. And the table here, just like before, presents the top five features of these occupations in declining order importance. What jumps out immediately, even more so than in the US, is the prominence of higher order cognitive skills that are associated with creativity. When we look at the existing occupations that are closest to them in declining order of proximity, one of the occupations obviously has high levels of creativity and combines traditional craft and tech-based skills. The other fits hospitality and sales occupations and also requires originality, flexibility, and management skills. And one of the things that we've done, I haven't got them on the slide deck here, but what you can do is sort of build personas. You know, in in this sort of uh, foresight framework, it's, it's typical to try and visualize imagine what these future occupations would be. I think one of the nice things about this sort of piece of research is you can have genuinely evidence-led data, grounded in the data, like data-led personas, and we've constructed personas for these hypothetical occupations here, uh, and we'll be publishing those at the end of the month. So I have argued that skills investment must be at the center of any long-term strategy for adjusting to structural change. A precondition to this is access to good quality, transparent analysis of future skills needs, as without it, Labour market participants and policymakers risk flying blind. The approach I've outlined is a step towards improving our understanding of this vital agenda and one that invites a much more proactive reaction than the defensive one that has characterised public discussions on automation in recent years. Recognising uncertainty at all stages of the working cycle is especially important. The risk of skills mismatch arises every time individuals change jobs. For example, according to the OECD, among displaced workers who are re-employed within a year, between 20% and 70% change occupational industry. Notwithstanding the economic benefits to firms of this labour supply flexibility, roughly a quarter of displaced workers experienced a major change in skills, one that is associated with sizable adjustment costs and wage losses. The challenges are even more daunting upstream, where there is a long lead time between investment in skills and competence in the workplace, where, for example, Educators are effectively being asked to teach students skills to solve problems that no one can foresee and may not materialize for years. This points to the need for a forward looking approach to education and skills policy which tackles the uncertainties head on. Thank you.